You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on September 10th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. Let's see. So we have a, a few questions saved up from previous times, but I want to say that, that uh, in general, you're welcome to ask me anything about sort of how stuff works scientifically, technologically, if I know, um, and uh, about perhaps things that you might have heard about in school or elsewhere, and it's like, what is this? How does it actually work? What, what is this really all about? Um, those, are, those are good things which um, uh, will perhaps uh, get us going in interesting directions. I mean, for me, uh, what I like about these uh, uh, sessions is uh, by asking me all kinds of questions that uh, I've never, never thought about before, this gives me an opportunity to think them through and uh, I end up understanding them deeper than I, than I did before. So I really appreciate that. Um, all right. Okay. We got two questions that just came in. All right. First question from Crunchy. Is there really such a thing as infinity or is it just a concept? That's an interesting question. Okay. What is infinity? Well, there are different let's talk about it in terms of like mathematical infinity. Let's talk about it in terms of numbers. We can say, we just count one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. And we just keep going forever. That's one version of infinity. Another thing we could say is, let's be doing arithmetic. Let's work out one over, let's say one over 0.1, that's 10. One over 0.01, that's 100 etc. One over zero, what's one over zero? Oh, it's infinity. That's another kind of thing that gives us infinity. So we can like count forever, we can compute one over zero. Those are two versions of infinity. Or we can ask a, a question like, uh, I don't know, if we allow, um, if we are making up combinations of letters, A, B, C. Let's say we've got A, B, C, and we say, what possible orders are there for that? There's B, A, C, C, B, A, et cetera. There are six possible orders, three factorial orders for that. We say, what if we have an infinite number of letters? How many possible orders are there for that? What if we have any, I shouldn't say an infinite number. What if we have any number of letters? How many orders are there for that? Again, it's an infinite number of, of orders. So there are questions like, so first question is, these are ways to sort of generate infinity. These are ways of saying, if you do this mathematical kind of thing, you will get something that we can talk about as infinity. Now, you say, well, what is infinity? Well, we can say, for example, in Wolfram language, we have a symbol that's just infinity, just the word infinity. And if you say one divided by infinity, you'll get zero. So we can just pick up that thing that we call infinity, and we can do operations on it. Now, it's a little bit su more subtle than that, because actually, there are different kinds of infinity. There are, for example, 
even uh, one type of issue is um, when you deal with complex numbers, for example, or when, let's say let's say we're just looking at we have uh, coordinates in the plane, and we say we're going to figure out uh, we're going to go an infinite distance away from the origin. Well, it may matter whether that infinite distance is along the x-axis, along the y-axis, or off at some angle. Those are, in a sense, all different infinities. Um, so there might be more information that was needed to sort of characterize the infinity. But nevertheless, you can, in a sense, just pick up that symbol infinity and do things with it and do operations on it. There's an elaborate theory that I think I talked about once before of transfinite numbers um, invented about 140 years ago now, um, that is a kind of a, a, a very nuanced theory of infinity and all, uh, all sorts of different mathematical ways that you can get infinity. But so at one level, you can just sort of pick up infinity and talk about it symbolically. You can just have the symbol that is infinity and one over it is zero and and for example, here's a question. If you have infinity, one over infinity is zero. Okay, what is infinity minus infinity? Probably that's still just infinity, but you can imagine a whole elaborate theory of sort of nuanced theory of what these different combinations of infinity actually are. Well, so a question is, okay, you've got this thing that is infinity. Is that, uh, is that enough? Is it, you know, can you actualize infinity? Can you, you know, you can say, I can talk, I can reason in terms of infinity, but can I actualize infinity? Can I actually make infinity in our universe? That's an interesting question. What does it mean? What is the difference between merely being able to talk about infinity and being able to sort of hold all of infinity in your hand and deal with it? Um, I think the uh, one way to think about the distinction between these things is there is a notion of a symbolic infinity that you can get by imagining a mathematical process where a, a um, when, okay, when you get infinity by just finding successive integers, that is an infinity which can be described as a process that is a very straightforward process to describe. But another version of infinity would be some very elaborate, complicated computational process that never terminates. And it's always doing new and different and interesting things, but it keeps on going forever. That's in a sense, a differently parameterized version of infinity. And I think that that version, that, that you could say, oh, I'm just gonna characterize that as it takes an infinite time to halt or it, it just goes on for an infinite time, but there's more structure inside that infinity. And one feature of an infinite process is that there can be an infinite amount of structure inside an infinite process. And when you say, I've got this thing that is like a, an infinite number, you're just imagining that's just one plus one plus one plus one plus one infinite number of times. But an infinite process could contain all of this complicated stuff that's going on. So for example, in our model of physics, it is quite likely that the history of the universe is in some sense an infinite process where we've just got, you know, we've gone through 14 billion years of it, but it is potentially an infinite process going into the future. And that's something where the, to compress that and just say, oh, it's inf infinite, is to lose a lot of the structure of what's happening. So I, I think my, my answer is that 
you know, the, the thingness of infinity, there is a sense in which one can sort of consider infinity as a thing, just a symbol in a symbolic language or something. But in a sense, that is, that is sort of conflating lots of different things that one might, that could be packed into infinity. If I say a thing, well, the word thing conflates lots of different kinds of objects, which could all be called things. The tricky thing about infinity is that when you say it's an infinite thing, you can pack an arbitrary amount of detail into that infinite thing. If it's only a finite thing, there are only some, in some sense, some set of, some limited set of possibilities that it corresponds to, whereas an infinite thing, there could be an arbitrary level of stuff associated with that thing. That's, that's at least some, some version of this. Um, I think, uh, let's see, um, uh, there's a question from Jonas here, does infinity have a magnitude? Well, usually I'm not sure what one means here by magnitude, but, but um, uh, this whole question, okay, I mean, uh, let me maybe not get into too many of these details, but I would like to say that there, there's a lot of nuance to the concept of infinity. Both transfinite numbers, which are a construction, there are so-called transfinite ordinals, which are what you get by counting successor, 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 plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one, plus one. That's a, the thing you get by infinitely doing the process of counting up is the transfinite ordinal, usually called lowercase omega. The, um, you can then say, what is omega to the power omega? Or what is omega to the omega to the omega to the omega infinite? sequence of powers that has a different name that's called epsilon zero usually that's another transfinite number and you can ask questions like is omega to the omega to the omega to the omega bigger than omega plus one answer yes that's a sort of that that's the fine detail of infinity those are ordinal numbers then there's the question of um when if you take um if you just say how many numbers are there that's a cardinal number so the number of integers is aleph zero. Um, that's, and the number of real numbers, the number of numbers with, with specified by decimal digits is usually called aleph one. And this big question is two to the aleph zero um, equal to uh, aleph one. That's a thing called the continuum hypothesis. And that's a thing where there's a whole discussion about whether one should consider it to be true. It's something which is independent of the usual axioms of mathematics, the usual axioms that are used in set theory. And so there's, there's sort of a whole issue of what does mathematics look like if you assume the continuum hypothesis versus if you assume not the continuum hypothesis. And one of the things that is, I think, quite interesting is, you know, there's sort of two different branches of mathematics, one in which you assume two to the aleph zero is equal to aleph one, and one in which you assume it isn't. And the, um, you can say, well, what are those two branches of mathematics? Is it like just two sets of mathematicians who think different things, or is one fundamentally true and the other one fundamentally not true? It is my guess right now that in some sense, mathematics is a, well, this is getting us into too deeply into, into kind of foundations of mathematics and metamathematics and so on. But let, let me just say that I have a suspicion that 
if we assume that mathematics is being done by, in a sense, humans with certain characteristics, then it can quite possibly be the case that we are effectively, by virtue of those characteristics of us as people sort of exploring the universe of possible mathematical truth, we are necessarily led to a particular conclusion to that hypothesis. But anyway, back to infinity. So there's counting of numbers, ordinal numbers, cardinal numbers. Then there's counting of, uh, in a sense, um, let's say it's more like counting of processes. And then you get into these things like quantification over integers. You say, for all integers, the following thing is true. Then you can say, for all functions that take an integer and return an integer, this is true. Or you could say for all uh, that you can go to these sort of higher levels of, of quantification of saying for all of this kind of object that is generated by some, some process, this is true. And, and that leads you to these, these sort of higher levels of infinity that are more associated with processes than with, uh, again, the things with transfinite numbers are also associated with processes, but they're very straightforward processes. They're processes that um, uh, have, um, um, that have uh, kind of, that, that are very, just take the success of a number, take the success of a number, rather than do this arbitrary kind of computation that you might do. I mean, I would say, yeah, there's, there's much more to say about that. Um, it's, uh, okay, so Jonas is asking, is infinity really a mathematical object? Um, well, yes. What does it mean to be a mathematical object? It means you can do structured mathematics with that object. And it is absolutely true that there are axioms, you know, insofar as we think of mathematics as being based on axioms that we assume are true, like x plus y equals y plus x. There are absolutely axioms that can be applied to these various forms of infinity. Turns out that x plus y equals y plus x, which is something true of finite numbers, is not true of transfinite numbers. So that's something where there is a mathematical statement that would be true for all finite numbers, not true for infinite numbers, uh, at least not true for infinite numbers as represented as transfinite numbers. And so, yes, you can, you can, um, uh, but, but yes, there's absolutely a sort of theory of infinity. But one of the things that's tricky is when we do mathematics, we are essentially implicitly assuming certain axioms of mathematics, like that x plus y equals y plus x and so on. Those get made explicit in more formal mathematics, uh, like the piano axioms for arithmetic and so on. When we deal with infinite things, nobody really knows what the right axioms to use are. And there are different choices. Like, for example, what I mentioned with the continuum hypothesis, there are different choices of axioms that might lead you to different mathematical conclusions. In fact, the way that works when one's dealing with infinite quantities and transfinite numbers and so on is um, there are a whole collection of different axioms one can use that extend effectively to deal with, with things like transfinite numbers. They're usually called the large cardinal axioms. And there's just an infinite collection of possible such actions you could use. Each will lead to a set of different mathematical conclusions. So it's no longer the case when you're dealing with these infinite quantities that the same kind of intuitive mathematics that you know, we've kind of used since the Babylonian times will work. Instead, we have to be more formal and say, this is what we're assuming 
then these are the inferences that we make. And these are things which we can, we can conclude. And that, so when you say, but what's correct? You know, when we have one axiom system about infinity, we get this, have another axiom system, we get that. What's correct? Well, the answer is we can't say. And the reason we can't say is because we can't actualize infinity in the universe. For some of these other things where we're talking about finite numbers and so on, we can imagine actualizing that in terms of, you know, we collect, have a collection of stones and we add some number of stones and so on. And we can say in our actual universe, X plus Y equals Y plus X. But when it comes to infinite numbers, because we can't actualize the infinite numbers in our universe, we can't, on the basis of the physics of our universe, come to a conclusion about that. The real question is, can we come to a conclusion about that on the basis of us as the entities doing the mathematics? And I think we might be able to come to such a conclusion. We might have the, the, the result that basically, if we are entities doing mathematics who have, for example, bounded computational capabilities and certain kinds of, of, of things that relate to sort of consciousness and our thread of experience and so on, if we have those things, then it necessarily is the case that we should consider as reality certain axiom systems for infinity. Um, so that's um, uh, that, that's that's the um, kind of the way that that works. Let's see. There's a question here from what's the difference between counting numbers and counting processes? Uh, well, there isn't a difference between those. Counting numbers are just one plus one plus one plus one plus one. The process of counting is a nice simple thing that we can sort of describe in terms of transfinite numbers. But when we have a, let, let me give you an example, okay? So let's say that our process is something where instead of taking a number one and we just add one, we add one, we add one, we instead we have a string, A, B, A, 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 B, 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 something like this. And at every step, we replace BB by AAA, let's say. And we also can replace AB by something else. Okay, there are many different string replacements we can do. If we set up the right string replacement, there might be an infinite sequence of string replacements we can do. But it can be very complicated to characterize, unlike the case of numbers where it's just a chain, one, two, three, four. In the case of those string replacements, we get what I call a multi-way system of all these possible replacements that can happen. And that infinite process of all these different replacements that can happen, it's a much more elaborate thing than just the, the chain of counting of numbers. And so it's not something that we can characterize in the same way by just using, for example, the theory of transfinite numbers. It's an interesting question whether we can, this is a vastly more technical issue, whether we can characterize uh, certain families of, multi, of infinite multi-way graphs, these graphs that represent, represent kind of what gets rewritten as what, whether we can characterize those infinite multi-way graphs in terms of something like transfinite numbers, whether there is essentially a calculus of the structure of those infinite objects. And the answer to that is not known. I mean, it's, it's known in some very restricted cases for things called combinators, but it's not in general known. Um, and my guess is that that there will not be a finite calculus that can be given of those kinds of infinities. Um, so uh, let's see. Um, Crunchy is asking, and this is a slightly more technical question, is Ruleal space finite or infinite? Uh, Ruleal space is infinite, um, but it's infinite in a very 
elaborately built up way. Um, but that's, that's a complicated story. Okay, that was an interesting question. All right, let's see. Um, oh, Mikhail is asking, how is it possible that the infinity of integers is smaller than the infinity of floating point numbers? Well, that's the continuum hypothesis. Um, okay, the question here about, um, boy, there's a question here from Aaron. Why can't mules and zonkeys reproduce? What are limits for different species of mammals breeding with each other? Uh, this is an interesting question. I mean, so, you know, the question of species is a, even sort of what constitutes a species and how we can, in some theoretical sense, predict when speciation is going to happen is an interesting one. So, you know, clearly we look around and we see different animals, we see different kinds of animals. There are, you know, there are all these different kinds of birds and mammals and beetles and, and all these other kinds of things. And they are, here's the interesting thing about them. It is not obvious why life breaks into these different species and why, why there are a certain number of different species. So people believe there are maybe 10 million species currently in existence on earth. There are, as you go from the big critters like us mammals there are many fewer, there's thousands of, of species of mammals, I think, um, and, and similarly, maybe a few thousand birds and things like that. When you get down to smaller organisms, you get more, more kinds of species. And the, this question of, of why does it break into these different species, interesting question. And by the way, I mean, I think there are like, if you look at standard taxonomic databases, databases where people have said there is a name for this critter and it is, you know, Homo sapiens or something, you know, it's usually, there's a, there's usually um, the, the so-called bi um, uh, binomial nomenclature invented by Linnaeus for species usually has sort of these, these two parts to the name. So it's, um, you know, ratus norvegus or something as the common rat, or I think bufo bufo is the common toad where it's being used by the, that, both, both pieces of the same, same name. But um, the, uh, if you look at taxonomic databases, I think there are about one and a half million species that appear in those databases. And, and you might ask a question, how does a species come to exist? Not come to exist as in, in the biological evolution sense, but just how does a species get recorded in the world? So, you know, there's a certain rate of people finding new things, new creatures. You know, I, somebody I uh, once knew had found a new species of lemur in Madagascar. You know, you can find people go out in particularly the Amazon uh, rainforest and find the Amazon jungle and find um, all sorts of new species of beetles and things like this. And there's a certain, um, and, and then what happens is somebody finds their beetle, what do they do? Well, they have to get a type specimen. They have to get a particular instance of the beetle that they go and preserve. And for example, you can go in the Natural History Museum in London, I think they have a collection of, of type specimens found by Charles Darwin that are stored in formaldehyde or whatever, um, you know, in uh, uh, these, all these different kinds of barnacles and things like this that were identified as separate species by Charles Darwin. And so you, you, um, uh, you get the type specimen, you, you put it in a museum somewhere, 
um, then you register the name with the, uh, what is it, International Commission on Biological Nomenclature, I think, and they have certain rules about what kinds of names you can, you can put in, although people, people put in some pretty wild names. And there was, a, there was a thing going for a while where you could like sponsor a beetle and you could uh, sort of uh, buy naming rights to the beetle and things like this. But in any case, so that's sort of how species get identified. There's a type specimen. So that's a, a particular beetle that has, you know, is one particular beetle. And that beetle has certain DNA. It has a certain genetic sequence. And that is a sample genetic sequence for that kind of beetle. But not all beetles of that species will have the same genetic sequence, just like not all of us humans will have the same genetic sequence. In fact, no two humans, except identical twins, will have the same genetic sequence, typically. Uh, each person has, of the six billion base pairs, each person has, has um, uh, many, many millions of differences but, but from other people. And usually any given person has maybe around half a million uh, sort of uh, things that have never been recorded before, typically, and maybe have never been never occurred before as those particular changes in the genome of human. So what does it mean to be of different species? It means not, there's a certain sort of zone of variation within a species where there's, you know, let's say of 6 billion base pairs, maybe there's, uh, I don't know, 20 million base pairs that are differing between different members of a species, but it's still within the species. Then you say, well, let's go to a different species. Well, now there's more change in the genome. How much more change? Well, it turns out that life on Earth is not particularly innovative at some level. It's kind of outrageous when you look at the different kind of systems that exist in us for you know, the way that cell membranes work or the way that cells generate energy or the way our immune system works, things like this. There are many, many of those things that have been conserved for a really long time. So maybe they, the ancestors that we had in the, in the history of life on Earth from a billion years ago already had their insulin system and their this system and their that system. They were already existed there. So in a sense, those, those things, we, they were not, those are not you know, unique innovations of our genome. And so this question is, why do things break into species where there is a, a big variation of the genome versus within a species, there's sort of a little variation of the genome. Now, it doesn't always work that way. For example, for viruses, it's, uh, which have much shorter genomes, like the, 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 uh, you know, the SARS-2 coronavirus um, that has made this pandemic, it has a 30,000 base pairs, 29,000 base pairs in its uh, genome sequence. And there are many variants, you know, the Delta variant, the this variant, the that variant. Those variants have, I'm not sure exactly how much the variation is. It's, it's some, uh, it'll be maybe, maybe hundreds of base pairs. I'm not sure. Um, the, uh, but in any case, this notion of sort of speciation is a little bit different for viruses. There's a, there's a, a much, there's potentially a much larger number of, of these variations. The other thing that happens is that can actually be, uh, yeah, another thing I should mention is, okay, so in, in higher organisms, species sort of happen because of reproductive isolation. That is, um, you know, a, a, I don't know, a zebra can mate with a zebra, but a zebra cannot mate with an eagle. Just doesn't, doesn't work. And 
So, but with viruses, there can be much more kind of crossover of this one virus and a very different virus can combine their genome to make another kind of virus. So this idea of speciation by reproductive isolation like that doesn't really work for these very lower organisms, so to speak. Now, you know, why is it, why do things break into species? Why is it the case that as you go um, through, through biological time, why is it the case that this thing that started off as just one type of zebra or something broke into, you know, in the fossil record you might find, first there was a sort of proto-horse and then the proto-horse broke off this kind of horse and that kind of horse. Or for, the, for example, the history of, uh, of primates and leading to humans, for example, there were all these different things, the Neanderthals, the uh, Denisovans, the, um, uh, the, the, what are they called? The uh, Homo florensis, the little, little uh, uh, predecessors that we had. These were all different kind of variations that all broke off as different species. Now, of course, it's more complicated because we know that uh, Neanderthals mated with, with uh, uh, Homo sapiens, and that's why you know, there's a certain fraction of our genome that is a Neanderthal genome. And uh, I think people from Northern Europe tend to have a little bit more of that than people from other parts of the world. Um, but so you know, that's a case where this, oh, it broke into a separate species isn't really quite right. Um, but so usually, what tends to happen is that, you know, for uh, there's, okay, what will tend to happen is, let's say there's a particular type of, I don't know, horse or something, and one horse is living in forests, and one horse is living on, on grassy plains. Well, it could be the case that the, that the process of biological evolution will lead the horse that lives in the forest to have a different kind of tooth or something or a different kind of hoof than the horse that lives on grassy plains. Um, and what does it mean that biological evolution is doing that? It means that the, the horse that's on the grassy plain that has the nice hoof that allows it to gallop around the plains is, um, uh, is likely to be more successful and therefore to have more children and therefore there are more of that kind of horse with that kind of hoof. Whereas the one that lives in the forest where if you had that kind of hoof, you would trip up a bunch and you would break your leg and, and you wouldn't have, have little uh, horse children, so to speak. Um, and so your line would die out. And so instead, what would happen is those horses that happened to have a kind of hoof that was well adapted to walking around in the forest, there'd be more of those and you, and you progressively get more of that. So these different environments will end up with horses with different hooves, let's say, in, in one environment versus another. And what was originally, oh, it's a general purpose horse that will work in both environments. Steadily, there will be more and more sort of variation to the point where the horse that's on the plains will have this kind of hoof, the horse that's in the forest will have this kind of hoof. And these, in a sense, and, and then there comes a point when those horses kind of, when they don't mate anymore. And exactly why that happens and, and whether that's just you know, well, that horse doesn't, you know, it's uh, doesn't think that other horse is cute or whatever else, or simply it, you know, one horse is tiny, another horse is huge. If they were to mate, it will be a disaster because the little horse embryo, you know, if, if, the, if it was a, a female horse, which was tiny and a male horse that was absolutely huge and the, and the, um, 
you know, and, and, and they, they mate, then there'll be some giant horse, horse fetus that's growing inside the tiny horse, and that would be totally bad news, and the, and the tiny horse wouldn't even make it. Um, so things like that can happen where there's sort of reproductive isolation because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't work to have, to have those things mate. And that's kind of the, the, the sort of the general theory of how, how species break apart. And what can happen, and I don't know the details actually of why um, mules, for example, end up being, there's probably some very simple genetic explanation, which I should know and don't, for why mules end up not being able to mate with, with, um, uh, with other mules. There may be some very, there's probably a very obvious reason for that in terms of the genetics of what's going on. But this question of, of uh, sort of what leads to this sort of isolation of species, it's something to do with the environment of the species, something to do with the actual morphology of the organisms of things like, you know, are they the wrong size and shape um, to be able to successfully mate and so on. But it's also possible, and nobody really knows, I think, the extent to which, you know, maybe in some weird case, this one organism will mate with some other organism that's a little bit, that's quite different, somewhat different from it. And in that case, they will successfully produce an offspring, much like what happens with the mixing of genetics and, and viruses. But with viruses, it, it works most of the time. With larger organisms, it won't work most of the time. But maybe, you know, it is certainly, I think, still within the realm of possibility that there are incredibly unlikely events where two slightly different species end up mating and producing something which is genetically completely different and really starts a completely different line, as opposed to the more gradual process of, oh, there's a small mutation in this, in that there, there are species, that there are organisms that are very similar that are mating, they produce a, um, uh, an, a, a genome that's very similar that, that okay, so when, 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 uh, uh, organisms mate and they, they will, their DNA will be combined. So for example, if you look at, uh, like if I take my children as examples, right, they have uh, half, half of their genome, half of their DNA comes from me, half comes from my wife and, um, the, um, uh, and they, they'll have about half a million or so places on their genome where there were mutations that happened that are uh, new mutations that were not, didn't come from either of the parents, so to speak. They're new inventions in their genomes. But how does it actually work, the, the combination of genetic material from, from different parents? The answer is, so our, our genome, our six billion base pairs are broken into 23 chromosomes which are just stretches of DNA that sort of uh, are separated, that curl up separately. Um, and each one is replicated separately as well, but they're, they're just parts of our full complement of, of, of DNA. But then what happens is on every given chromosome, during this replication process, there will be some stretches of DNA that come from one parent, some stretches of DNA that come from another parent. And they're these so-called crossovers where on a given chromosome, you'll have a run of stuff that comes from one parent and a run of stuff that comes from the other parent. And I think I, I looked at this for my kids. I think there are about five crossovers per chromosome. So that means that there'll be a, a run of stuff where they get everything from parent, you know, from their father and, uh, versus everything from their mother. 
and, and that gets that that sort of there runs of that through a chromosome. And so it's sort of interesting because the, you know, you might think, oh, that would mean somebody would get, you know, their father's nose and their father's ears together, so to speak, because those are close together on the chromosome. The fact is that our the, the different capabilities or different features of, of organisms are so mixed up in the, in, the, in the sequence on chromosomes that you don't tend to see those kinds of things that come together, although in principle they might. But so that's, that's kind of the way that the mixing happens is through these, these crossover events where you're getting from one parent versus the other on, on a single genome. And, and where those crossovers happen is kind of random. It's a detail of, of what happens during the replication process, but that's, that's sort of what leads to that, um, uh, that difference. And, and you can kind of wonder, you know, what, do, well, so th that, that's sort of the origin of, of um, uh, so within a species, those are the kind of variations that are happening. As you go to different species, you have much bigger variations that presumably happen through an accumulation of small mutations, although might have happened through some bizarre giant crossover event from two rather different organisms having, having uh, successfully produced a, a, a progeny. But um, I mean, this question of, of how many, for example, this question, can you estimate on the back of an envelope how many species there should be on the earth? Nobody knows how to do that. There are some laws that say that on an island of a certain area, there tend to be a certain number of species. And as you change the area of the island, there tend to be more or less species. There tend to be more species as the island gets bigger. Um, uh, those, those empirical laws may be uh, not really statements about the process of evolution as statements about, you know, how do things get to be on an island at all? You know, you have to fly there because there isn't a, you know, a land way to get there or something like this. So, uh, but, but it's a very interesting question, even why there are the, why there are lots of species, why, you know, why there aren't a trillion species, why there aren't only a thousand species. People might say, well, there are lots of different, you know, niches in the world. And so, Therefore, there are more species to handle different niches. But I, I suspect that, uh, you know, among other things, the existence of different species creates different niches. So, for example, when there is different kinds of trees, those, you know, if there are different kinds of trees in a certain area, those create the, the sort of the wherewithal to have different kinds of birds and different kinds of beetles and so on. And so it's a, it's a complicated interwoven network of, of different things. And it's, I think, by no means self-evident that, uh, you know, there might be intrinsic niches associated with the geology of the earth and the climate of the earth, but then there are niches that are made by the existence of other organisms. And it's not at all obvious why there should be, why the, the number of species on the earth is on the, in the millions. For example, if we found some other planet that uh, had been populated by life like life on earth, and that planet was, let's say, a much bigger planet, would we find that there were many more species on a bigger planet or not? If the Earth, for example, if it was the case that uh, less of the Earth was habitable, less of the Earth could support the kind of life that our chemistry of life supports, let's say more of the Earth was, was like Antarctica, um, would it be the case that there will be fewer species if there was only a, a thin strand of regions on the Earth which could support any kind of life by virtue of the chemistry? Would there be fewer species? I don't think we know the answer to that. Interesting question. Um, 
as a question, is it five crossovers? And I, would, I believe so. I, but I, I certainly my children are nothing, nothing. They may be, they may be special and wonderful people, but they're, they're not special with respect to genomics. And I think my, um, um, uh, you know, I, I was very pleased when I got my genome sequenced oh, a dozen years ago now. Um, I was sort of pleased to discover that my, um, my genome is in many ways very typical of human genomes and didn't seem to have too many bizarre sort of variations, which is probably good news because sort of uh, natural selection on our species has meant that the sort of the average genome is kind of a genome that's gonna do okay, as opposed to a genome that has a very weird feature here that um, uh, you know could be really good, but could also be really bad. Um, I think the, uh, there is a question you know, when you look at the human genome, people say we've sequenced the human genome. There is a question of which genome, because there are 7 billion humans on the earth and they all have different genomes. And people are asking, what's the, how big is the variation? Um, the, I, I, I'm, I, unfortunately, I don't know. Somebody can look that up. I, I don't know the immediate answer. I know that the, the number of, of uh, individual variation is about 700,000 uh, SNPs, 700,000 individual um, individual positions on the genome, but I've forgotten what it is for for typically between two individuals. Um, uh, how many how many differences there are that aren't individual different from everybody else, so to speak. But um, uh, uh, yeah. So there's a question um, here from Journey on memes on the internet conceptually a species. Well, yes, I think so. I mean, I think that. What does it mean when, that's a very interesting question actually. I mean, natural selection, the idea that there is a, a thing, that when you have a thing that, when you have many variations of a thing and certain success criteria for that thing cause there to be more copies of the thing, that is the basic process of natural selection. And it applies to many different kinds of things. It might apply to products in produced by companies. It might apply to planets in a solar system that are you know, knocked out of the solar system or not. And potentially it applies to memes on the internet. And there's sort of a, a I think the memes on the internet case is perhaps a, um, um, yeah, I mean, this question of whether See, one thing that doesn't tend to happen with biological species is the merging of species. That is, once you've got, it is really a tree of life, two species, at least for higher organisms, if not for viruses. Um, you know, when you get, uh, you know, two, when you speciate, when you make a horse versus a, versus a donkey versus a zebra, those are really separate branches. And, you know, unless they can mate, and if you assume they can't because they've broken into separate species, by that definition of species, they're a tree, they're separated. Now, I suspect when it comes to memes on the internet, there could be ones, there could be a different process, which is a process of merging. That happens, for example, with words and languages. You can have words where a single word kind of breaks into um, two, different, um, two different words, but you can also have perhaps rarer processes where two different words end up being, you know, coming together to be the same word. Jonas asks, so is a species just determined by, by visual features or by breeding? This is, this is one of the big questions of systematic biology is, um, uh, 
you know, when you look at um, uh, to what extent can you identify a species by morphology, by the form of the organism, versus to what extent is the DNA the 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 sort of the the, the right thing? Or, well, actually, to, uh, okay, there are three different definitions you could use. One is can the organisms breed with each other? The other, another is do the organisms look the same? And the final one is do the organisms um, uh, do they? How different is their DNA? So take dog breeds as an example. Dog breeds are a messy case because dog breeds can, to some extent, mate with each other. But yet dog breeds can be visually, morphologically, seem really quite different. Um, their DNA, I'm not sure how different their DNA is. Not sure about that. Um, and uh, to what extent you can identify these. I mean, you certainly can identify dog breeds by their DNA, just as you can identify things with... Um, uh, with different, um, um, the, um, uh, with different, um, um, uh, the, the, you can identify, you know, humans who come from different parts of the world and so on. Um, and, uh, the, um, um, well, let's see, I think I, I'm going to need to go in a moment, and actually, I'm going to be doing another live stream about a much more technical topic. But um, uh, let's see. Well, just maybe one more comment on. Um, oh yeah, I was I was talking about the different difference between the morphological definition of species just by the form of things versus the DNA version. Um, I know one time, silly personal story. Oh, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. Uh, there was some, some kind of uh, bug beetle type thing. Um, and it was like at our house and it was like, is this a bed bug? Is this a, you know, is this, a, is this some kind of, um, you know, is it a terrible infestation of this kind of thing? And so it was like, well, is it or isn't it? We have the specimen and it's like, can we identify this, this critter? And so I look it up on the web and I also, people have been using actually our technology to try and make beetle identification um, systems where, which these days one would do with machine learning and, and vision systems, but then it was more kind of how many legs does it, well, they all have the same number of legs. How many antennae does it have? You know, how ramified are its antennae? Things like this. I look at this stuff and it's like, I cannot tell, no idea because it's just too difficult to follow all these, you know, that they're usually these species identification uh, kind of flow charts. And you can do that, you know, there are, there are these things like leaf identification flow charts where you say, does the leaf have this shape or that shape? If it, if it, is, a, if it is a simple leaf, you know, one blob of leaf, then it's this, but it's a compound leaf in many pieces. You go down this branch. If it's a serrate leaf where it has a serrated edge, you know, a kind of a, a wiggly edge versus a, a straight edge, then, um, uh, then you go to this branch and so on. And eventually you're going down all these branches and you eventually say, okay, that must be an oak tree. Well, there's similar kinds of things for beetles. It, it's just more complicated because I think there are more kinds of beetles than there are, for example, flowering plants. Um, and so I ended up um, taking the specimen into um, uh, uh, people I knew who were in the entomology department at a, at a natural history museum and saying, can we identify this beetle? 
And it's like, well, yes, sure, we can identify this. And they start pulling out these drawers of beetles. And it's like zillions and zillions of beetles, all looking slightly morphologically different. And eventually it was possible to say, yes, this beetle I have in my hand, it looks like that one and none of the others. In other words, there really is a, a morphological difference, um, but that's a complicated thing. And, and in the world of taxonomy, where you're trying to decide what things should be called, and, and particularly you're trying to decide what's most related to what, what is in the same family as what, what should be considered, because one has this whole, you know, families and, and uh, orders and phyla, and this whole sort of hierarchy of, of description in the tree of life. And there are often vigorous arguments about whether something should be considered in the same family as this or not. And, and actually, when we've tried to curate the taxonomic tree for, for Wolfram Alpha, for example, uh, we find we run into all kinds of difficulties because there's one group of taxonomists that says, no, 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 this type of bird should be grouped with that type of bird. And another says, no, 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 that's absolutely wrong. You should group it with this other type of bird. There's, there's quite a, a vigorous um, kind of uh, set of discussions about those kinds of things based on morphology. Now, if you went to look at the DNA of those things, you said, how different is the DNA? You will again get some tree of differences because you know this DNA is different from that DNA and then it's similar to that DNA. You can group things together in some kind of tree, but it's an inferred tree because all you have is those pieces of DNA. You don't have the complete history of how did this organism, you don't have the complete history of organisms that lead you to know this particular set of branches go to this particular set of organisms and so on. So in any case, that, that's a, um, uh, this question about sort of, is there a global theory of kind of how speciation happens, how, how one should think about this kind of uh, set of, you know, the, 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 for example, how one should think about the existence of different organisms, the different numbers of numbers of individuals of different organisms, all these kinds of things. There isn't a good global theory of these things. There are there are pieces in evolutionary biology. There are particular situations in which you can use things like game theory to try to uh, figure out certain kinds of outcomes where you can say this combination of, of things will combine this way. And the result of that is you'll have twice as many of this organism and that organism, or twice as many of this gender of this organism and that gender of that organism and so on. Um, but there are comparatively few cases where it's possible to see just by virtue of kind of the, the, um, the, competi the, the local competition between species, for example, um, where you can see that type of thing. And, and the global question of like, why are there, let's say 10 million, four to 10 million species in the world it's just not known. And you know, to have a global theory of that and to have something which allows you to tell that will be very interesting. I mean, for example, we don't know if in the Precambrian period, um, or where we, we just have a few you know, little pieces of fossils from that time, we don't know. Maybe there were a trillion species in those days. Maybe before life had worked itself out to the extent that it has now, maybe there were vastly more kinds of organisms. Maybe maybe life was trying out a lot more possibilities and it kind of whittled itself down to the number we have today. Um, it's, um, I think uh, uh, that that's, um, uh, and, and over the course of, you know, the fossil record, we know, you know, the number of species 
that we find in fossils has gone up and down as there are big extinctions where, you know, 80% of the species will go extinct and stuff like this. But the total number of species in the, in the main part of the fossil record hasn't apparently, at least the ones that we find as fossils, doesn't seem to have changed that much. Um, but in earlier periods of life, it might have been very different, I think. Um, it's, uh, um, oh, okay, there's one last question from Jonas here, and then I, I should wrap up. But can genetic traits lay dormant for centuries or millennia, um, recurring changes after, after some number of generations? That's an interesting question. So it reminds me there's a science fiction movie where the, the um, uh, what's it called? Something Rising, I've forgotten what it's called. But it's uh, where, the, where the kind of concept is that there's a, a chain of succession of, you know, who's in charge of the galaxy, and that chain of succession is whenever the exact same genome shows up again, then just by random mutations, then that person will be in charge of the galaxy or whatever. The truth is that would take a ridiculously long time, far for any organism with genome size comparable to the kinds of ones that we have, that would be an absurdly you know, vastly, unbelievably longer than the lifetime of the universe. I suppose one could pick a small piece of the genome. Actually, it's a good question. I mean, for the mitochondrion, for example, our the energy source in our cells that's kind of been evolved separately from the rest of us and passes down the female line in, in, uh, in organisms like us. Um, the mitochondrion is 1,600 base pairs, maybe, something like that. Mm, is that right? I'm not sure. Um, so the question would be, have of the 100 billion humans that have ever lived have has how many times has the mitochondrion by pure chance been a repeated mitochondrion exactly repeated mitochondrion now of course it isn't the case that every base pair in the mitochondrion is picked at random um so i'm not quite sure what the answer to that would be but that's an interesting question how often do things just by pure chance end up being exactly the same now there's a question could there be a trait uh, yes, the answer, okay, so the issue is, in our genetic, in our genome, there are all kinds of crazy pieces of the genome that were genes that were produced proteins that were super useful when those genes first existed in a fish or something. For us, well, most of the time we don't activate that gene. Probably there is some pruning process that gets rid of the junk at some rate, but probably not that higher rate, because it isn't that expensive to carry along extra pieces of genome um, as for an organism. And so the question would be: Are there, are there, for example, pieces of our genome that are have been unused for a long time, but but suddenly, for example, when we colonize Mars, suddenly the folks who colonize Mars, there'll be genes that start getting. Uh, transcribed from genomes of, of Mars colonists that have never been used by, by any humans on Earth, for example. Could that happen? Could there be pieces? And, and the answer is, sure, there are parts of our genome that, are, that we make use of, I don't know, when we're dealing with, I don't know, parasite infections that are not so common in the kind of, you know, in the sort of ultra-clean Western world or something as they are in other parts of the world. Um, you know, we just don't activate those parts of our, our genetic makeup. Now, the question is, could there be something where there's kind of a, 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 a very recessive trait, something which 
which uh, yeah we okay so so often you know because we have two copies of every chromosome there are certain traits like eye color where you know you can have a dominant trait as soon as you have one brown eye as soon as either of your um, either of the chromosomes that contain the eye color gene as soon as either of them is a brown gene your eye color will be brown basically because you're making a protein you make at least some of a protein and that protein makes the eye brown and so you end up with blue eyes you only get blue eyes if both your chromosomes have um uh have um uh that that carry that gene have um the um uh have don't have the one for making the brown eye uh protein so a question would be is there a way in which one can have um, genes? That's an interesting question. Could you have a chain of genes that is not just dominant recessive, um, but is something where you have to have a whole sequence of genes be a particular way for it to be the case that some other gene is activated? And I think the answer is definitely yes. I don't know of a specific example, but I think that that could be a, a, a yes, that only when certain a certain collection of of of, uh, of genes sort of line up, for example, between um, between the, the different chromosomes and so on. Then you could end up having some trait that would otherwise have been a, a lost trait. And I'm I'm sure because in genetics there's usually an example of everything. I'm sure there's an example of that. Um, I just don't know what it is offhand. All right, I should uh, I should wrap up here and. Um, going to be doing another live stream about a much more technical topic about molecular computing. Um, that's just a working session. Um, and uh, I should uh, wrap up. So uh, thanks for joining us. A lot of good questions today. And um, uh, we'll cover some of the ones we didn't get to today. I'll hopefully cover next time. And um, please think of great questions. And I think you can probably send them in somewhere um, and they'll get stored up so we can um, make use of them in a, in a subsequent one of these. So thanks for joining us. See you again soon. Bye. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.